This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, big conversation for you. What does it take to catch a serial killer? Peter Valentin is a former detective and the chair of Forensic Science Department at the University of New Haven. He tells us what it's like to investigate these cases and why they're so different from other criminal cases. It's time for a sunshine-packed episode of Game Showy, Canada's favorite radio game show. We battle for pride and glory in a second round of summertime trivia for you. And are you okay with OnlyFans and more? All on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. I'd like to welcome back to The Shift a, a new friend of the program. Um, his, neater, uh, his name is Peter. That was ne- name and, and Peter coming together all in one in my brain. His name is Peter. Um, uh, Peter Valentin is with the University of New Haven, and uh, he's a PhD. He's a former police investigator that got into the science and the teaching, which is fascinating in itself. That's backwards. Uh, most people don't do it that way. Um and this is cool. So the official title is Chair of Forensic Science Department, Senior Lecturer, University of New Haven, and back with us. Now, Peter, we were talking about some other sciencey forensics evidence the last time we chatted. And at the end of that conversation, serial killers uh, came up and the evidence behind that. We've had a situation here in Canada where a notorious uh, killer was moved from maximum security to medium security. And so it has caused a lot of uproar politically over how that happened when it wasn't um, wasn't really declared, I think, to families and, and so on and so forth, which is an opportunity for us to look at these kinds of people and how investigators find them. Now, Ryan and I were talking, and we're really excited to have you back. So thanks for being here. Um, appreciate it. Oh, Shane, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So the first question that I really wanted to ask about this was a question that we batted a ball around. And Ryan said... Ryan's very uncomfortable with this topic. Ryan said, are you going to ask Peter how to catch a serial killer or the mentality of a serial killer? And I translated that. I said, I don't think you can, you can claim to be a scientist unless you know what is science. And I I think that much like hot, cold, up, down, left and right, the mentality of a serial killer must be integral to catching a serial killer through the forensics and the evidence that comes with that. Okay, that's not a question, but that's where I want to start. Where does that land? Yeah, that's a very intriguing premise to to start the conversation with. And again, thanks for having me. So I, th- I think what we need to do is we can, we can separate the, the science from it, which is, if you want to think about it, it's the glue that holds the case together, right? It's the uh, incontrovertible component of your case that you know, if the evidence exists and if it points to a, 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 an individual, well, then your case is solved, or at least the premise is that your case is solved. However, you know, in the beginning of the investigation, which is where these thoughts about you know what kind of killer are we looking for, you know, those are when we want to use the other type of science, the social science, the psychology. Um, that that is really the the point of this discussion here. Now, those are a lot harder to use empirical evidence to to prove because ultimately what we're doing is we're you know in many ways we're asking the person who is the the perpetrator of this crime to give us insight into why they committed their crime what are they thinking uh perhaps in a more objective way what are the 
critical events in their life that perhaps have, have, have formed the aspects of the personality that, that laid a groundwork for these sorts of crimes. Uh, but I think from a practical perspective, the best way to think about this is, is that I use, um, and many investigators use, knowledge about what serial killer types are like in, in terms of behavior types, personality types, so that I can begin to narrow down the pool of suspects. I can't use this evidence in the same way that I can use a fingerprint or DNA or trace evidence because I can't, I can't use it as proof of the crime, but it can help me cull the potential pool of suspects down to a manageable level so that the forensics can become more probative. You need evidence that's digestible in court, uh, indisputable, if you will, um, where forensics kicks in and, you know, the yes is the yes, the no is the no to whatever percentile that science agrees in the agreement of it to be factual. To get there, though, and to find the fingerprint or find the hair follicle or uh, the blood or, you know, the, the sweat or whatever it is that leads you into the science that must be the magic of the investigator. Last time we chatted, you said when you go into, when you used to go into a fire, for example, or something like that, you were always looking for, okay, what am I gonna, what did I miss here? What What is it possible that I missed? That's the tell me something that I don't know that I don't know. And you have to be willing to embrace that. That's like going into a room as a lecturer, which I'm, you know, you're, you do, except as the expert lecturer with a PhD, you're getting up on stage in front of that class and you're basically saying, okay, I'm the stupidest guy in the room. I'm gonna figure out who done it. Y'all tell me something. And you, it, it's, it's kind of backwards, Peter. Oh, oh it definitely is. And I, and I think one of the most interesting parts about this is uh, you know, this idea that I can have what we would recognize as the most probative evidence a fingerprint, a, a, a fingerprint with lots of detail that absolutely would be useful in a database. I can have a full DNA profile, but what if I don't know whose fingerprint it is? Uh, what if I don't know whose DNA profile it is and, the, and those things are not in our databases? Well, I have this useful evidence, but I've got no direction to go in with it. And the only way that that extremely valuable evidence becomes probative in an investigation is if I can identify a potential source. And here's where the big sort of split between traditional investigations and the investigations of potential serial killers occurs, is that in normal investigations, what I'm generally trying to do is uncover the relationship between the victim and the offender. And the assumption there is that there is a relationship and it's one that I'll understand as an investigator. Now, it could be, it, it could be in a, a relationship we'd all, you know, just understand. It's a neighbor. It's a, it's a, it's a intimate partner. It's a coworker. It's a family member. You know, it's something that just through, you know, dogged investigative work, you'll uncover the connection between your victim and your offender. In some cases, the connection is much more tenuous. Yeah. It could be two people in line behind each other at a store yeah, like get into transit an altercation. User. Right, and so, right, yeah. they, they, but the connection is there. It's through potentially credit card receipts. It's through surveillance footage. It's through something that's much less intuitive, but nonetheless demonstrable. 
when we get into the realm of serial killers, I think part of what the mystique about all of that is, is that there is no connection between the victim and the offender. And it's, it's or let's say this, there's no connection that my typical investigative uh, efforts are going to uncover. And so it, it very often these these cases are ones that initially go cold because when we try all of our typical you know techniques, well, they don't amount to anything. They you know they they lead us nowhere valuable. But it would create a new set of connections in some fashion, wouldn't it? You just have to find what it is. I.e., um, there is some sort of psychology Oedipus thing going on, and my mom had brown hair, therefore victims have brown hair. Um, something bad happened to me, uh, in the woods in that province. Um, now I could be in a completely different province, but I'm in the woods where I run into this victim and so on and so forth. So there would be maybe an even more vague connection, uh, not predictable. Maybe it's a hindsight scenario now that I say that, but there still becomes a bit of a connection in the investigation of just figuring out, okay, well, why is it this person? If it's an active serial killer scenario, that would be integral, wouldn't it, to figure out what the motivation is to continue? Well, sure. I think I think the one of the places we start, and you know, if if we're dealing with the typical typical investigation, none of these things are are necessarily um, relevant because we uncover the connection so quickly that there's no need to really dig into you know what what a lot of people would understand as victimology. You know, what is the relative risk? level of the victim? Do they engage in a high-risk lifestyle? Do they uh, reside in a location that is uh, less secure, less safe? Like, what are the aspects of the victim's behavior, lifestyle, and so on that might increase the likelihood of them being exposed to or coming across a person like a serial killer? And so when our traditional investigative techniques fail to uncover the connection we're searching for, we begin to pay more attention to particular components of the victim. And I, you know, you reference hair color and you know perhaps other attributes. Those might become relevant later on as we begin to look to connect cases that otherwise would seem disconnected from each other. So if we have similar victim profiles, whether it's features, you know, uh, uh, the way that they look, whether it's you know risky behavior, um, there might be ways for us to connect previously thought to be unrelated victims together, which now lets us pool evidence together from a forensics perspective, but it begins to get, it begins to give us a sense of who is the perpetrator choosing or who is the perpetrator trying to connect to, meaning are they frequenting the same area of a neighborhood? Are they trying to uh, cross paths with a particular type of person? And here you can think about, you know, drug use or promiscuous activities. And so, as we begin to falter in, in the normal investigative process, we begin to think more about a tenuous connection between your victim and your offender, which opens up the idea of a serial killer. And let me just follow all this up by saying that, you know, there are psychologists who do a great deal of research, you know, by interviewing uh, perpetrators of these kinds of crimes to understand them. And I, as an investigator and the, and the beneficiary of that level of research, I could never use what they've done as a substitute for traditional investigative techniques. But, you right. know, as we mentioned before, what this helps me do is kind of 
develop a smaller suspect pool that I can then work with. A little bit of compass and direction, at least maybe to help sort of navigate. But is that part of the the magic of it, Peter? And when I say stupidest guy in the room, uh, I don't mean that as an indictment on anybody who's investigating. I mean, in uh, the, the notion of clearing your mind of being too smart for the situation that um, in the investigative process, if you get to those points where you talked about, you know, um, connections like hair color or whatever it might be down the road, if you leapfrog too much and get to that point too fast, do you, is that part of it where you have to go, whoa, 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 we got here too quickly. And it's great to solve it or think you can solve it or have a direction too quickly. But if you get to that end, that's like walking into, we talked about last time you were on, you know, arson, you walk into a room and you see a jerry can in the corner, you're like, oh, gasoline, I can go home now, right? When that's probably just coincidence or maybe a contributing factor, but maybe you're missing an awful lot by doing that. In serial killers, is there an element of, whoa, we are getting this way too quickly. This is way too much leapfrogging over info. We need to rebuild this. Does that happen? Oh, it, it definitely does. And it's one of these, and I, you know, you'd mentioned my background, which is, you know, definitely unusual in that uh, I was a scientist who became law enforcement. Uh, so that's not the typical career trajectory. But I will tell you that, you know, quite frankly, one of my personal failings was at times I didn't know what part of my mind to think with as I was conducting an investigation. And, and, for me, maybe I, you know, and, and certainly TV glamorizes this, you know, the idea is that, you know, one moment I could be at a crime scene and then later in the same episode, I'm now, you know, squinting through a microscope and looking at evidence. And, and that's not how things happen in real cases. There's a there's a very important need to you know differentiate between those who do the scene work and then those who do the lab work that support the efforts of, of the scene investigators. But in my particular situation, um, if I am thinking like a forensic scientist, I want a lot of information before I say something that's very limited, right? Because I want data. I want to think carefully about what that data can, you know, let me say. And I don't want to go any further than the science would allow. But, you know, and that sounds like, oh, good forensic science. But if you think about it, that's the antithesis of what an investigator does. A good investigator makes huge leaps in logic based on very, very small pieces of information that they very often correctly um, and intuitively think make a scenario more likely than not, right? So the idea of the jerry can in the corner of the room to a trained investigator is suggestive of an intentionally set fire. Why? Because their experience tells them so, they've spoken to people, they've seen enough photographs, they've been to enough scenes, as a forensic scientist, I work the opposite way. I need a lot of information to say something very, very uh, narrow. But as a detective, you look at very narrow bits of in or very small bits of information and you make grand sweeping judgments mm. about what those things mean. And for me, if I didn't know what part of my mind I would be engaging, I'd either be too late to the party because I'd be thinking like a scientist when I should be thinking like a detective right. or conversely, I'm way ahead of everybody because I'm thinking like a detective when I should have slowed down and thought more scientifically. And the trick for me was to know what part of my brain am I supposed to be engaging in? What kind of thinking is appropriate under these circumstances? Cool. And if you don't know that, 
you could make a big mistake. You could either yeah. not say enough or say too much. Well, and that's interesting because I, I picture it when you talk about that, the, the scientist versus the investigator as like a funnel. That's what came to my mind, right? Is that, that that investigator wants that funnel to get really, really wide and that feed all the hopper of info and I'm going to narrow it down to this tiny little feed and the opposite being true for the investigator where they're going to they're going to take little bits of info and then look at all the wide scope of what could be going on here. The one thing, though, that seems to be the same, at least from the conversations I've had from colleagues of yours and, and you know, peers, is that there is an element of, wait a second, that kicks in. I mean, there is that gut. I mean, you talked about intuition and being able to take it somewhere. I would say that what I'm observing, at least, is that there, there is that element of intuition and gut that makes you stop and go, okay something's not right here with what I have. Step back, reevaluate, whatever that looks like. Do they both have it in common though in order to get there with serial killers and, and these not typical cases? I mean, maybe it is for typical ones too. Oh, a absolutely. I think, you know, any good investigator has had the sense at some point in their career that things seem like they're falling into place too easily and rather than being encouraged by that, that's actually uh, something to be cautious about. Because, you know, you think about as human beings, our need to create order out of chaos. And could it be in this situation, am I trying, am I taking information that otherwise doesn't fit together? Am I jamming it together? Like you said earlier, you know, square peg in a round hole. Am I trying to force this information into a scenario that I've recognized from my previous work? And I, I tell you, one of the most interesting clarifications about all of this I got, not from anybody who is an investigator or a forensic scientist, but actually was an English professor who told me about something called master plots. You know, the, 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 the prototypical stories that we've been told over and over again in our lives and in pop culture. And if any of, if any of your listeners have ever watched a movie and felt betrayed by the outcome, mm. it's because you were sold a master plot and they did not deliver the conclusion that that master plot was supposed to have. And so, you know, as an investigator, you are very often overlaying your plot lines to the information that you're developing, the evidence that you're, you're, you're uncovering. And you have to have a moment of doubt about that and say, am I forcing this too hard? Is it actually not the story that I'm thinking of? And story sounds very um flippant here but it's a great analogy that oh, as is. detectives yeah. we develop stories we develop scenarios that we kind of see over and over and over again and every now and then all the elements of the story are there but that's not the actual story we just didn't see it that way and yeah. you can either have the case go cold because of that reason right we thought it was one thing and it wasn't um or in, you know, with the more sinister outlook, you know, you have a serial killer who is purposefully creating the scene to to move you in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, well, a story is such a huge word. It's such an important word in our lives because stories, humans, we make meaning like a machine, right? Oh, the bird flew in front of the car and then turned left. That means this. Like we literally make meaning out of everything. So when you're trying to cut through that, plus you put in a little psychology of conditioning, a um, little bit of bias, a little bit of prejudice, and all the things that unfold through our lives out of threat assessment, 
then all of a sudden now you're trying to do that with a clear conscience at the end of the day when you got to remember to get milk on the way home like th- there's a there's a lot going on to have that and and carry it forward so yeah i feel like i really connect when you talk about story and we all can really learn from that that storyline that we live into i mean if it's a robin hood and a Robin Hood story, well, they're a bad guy, but they're kind of trying to do good things. I mean, that's probably the easiest example that we could throw at it that would make everyone understand the kinds of things that kick in for us. Uh, Peter Valentin is here. He uh, is talking to us about serial killers and so much more. The haunting part, though, Peter, like when it's done, you've been through it. Either it's cold, they're dead, meaning the serial killer, um, and they're gone or whatever, other victims other MOs, if they're so unpredictable and they did this, psychology says, well, this is what they do. That is what they'll do. There's always the strange one that also had a different MO somewhere else because, you know, they're pretty warped thinkers. Um, The haunting part when you go home at the end of the day, though, I think that it would be integral to be disciplined in the process so you can have clarity at the end for completion. I mean, that would be a driving factor to pay attention to the details as you go, because then that way, you know, I didn't cut corners here. I wasn't distracted here. But we're also human, insert previous story comment. And at the end of the day, the haunting part, Peter, when when investigators go home at the end of the day, especially with such horrific images and scenarios as serial killers, that's got to be tough, man, really tough. It, it it definitely is, and I you know I don't want to sugarcoat it and, and gloss over this, but uh, you know you certainly carry the weight of all the things that you've seen, and 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 perhaps you know in a self critical way, um, there's also this um, sense of guilt that you have for all the cases where you're not quite sure you got to the right conclusion, or you you didn't catch that piece of information and understand it contextually as soon as you would have liked to. Um, and, and, you know, the more you learn about your own psychology as an investigator, as a human being, and the psychology of the people who commit these crimes, it makes you very wary. And so I used that story analogy because it, it made me aware of my own failings as a human being and how important it was to be um, blunt with myself about how those in, in an investigative setting are really, really dangerous. And so, you know, I think most of us, um, when we're exposed to a new piece of information, we don't embrace that new information, right? If that new information runs counter to what we believe, right? We all have opinions about things. We all have our belief system. And when you're, you're exposed to information that doesn't fit with your belief system or your previous opinion, we tend to not accept it as such. Right, we, we find ways to brush it aside. It doesn't fit our narrative. But what if that new information, now thinking criminally, what if that new information should have been understood for the value that it actually had? And if you had done it quick enough, you would have resolved this case sooner. You might have uncovered the suspect at a quicker time frame than you otherwise would have. And at the root of many cases that go cold, and I'm kind of mixed the serial killer and cold case uh, genres together because I would say in a fair number of situations, a cold case is actually a serial killer case that we don't recognize correctly. Um, We've made a mistake because we didn't have the right sense of what that crime was about. And the information might be there, but we, our personal failings as investigators, we didn't see it for what it was. Mm -hmm. Or I was convinced it was one thing 
I think this is a domestic. I saw the ex-boyfriend and that I know from my, and you can create this whole narrative to justify why you, you're instinctually thinking something. And what that does is it closes you down to new information that runs counter to what you believe. And I think those are the things that haunt us as investigators, the, the, the unknown failure that we kind of um, court, you know, as we do this work. Am I making the right choices? Am I going in the right direction? Am I pursuing the leads that make sense with yeah. the story, the scenario that I'm developing? Clarity seems so important. Um, Peter, when, when, cause you teach young people in all of this too. And so it's incredibly, um, it's incredibly important to, to consider that the, you look at this and I imagine things like imposter syndrome, all that would just be rampant with investigators because of, you know, the serial killer. Well, if I was better, it would have been one less victim. And if I, you could, you could have succeeded and caught the bad guy. Like you could have done everything. You could have actually succeeded, convicted, incarcerated, dealt with, taken off the streets. But at the same time, that whole imposter thing must kick in and, and that must be very difficult for, to teach investigators and young investigators. But at the same time, You've seen some ugly stuff, Peter. And does that give you the, because my question that was originally when it, in my mind that came to me was negative. It was, you know, humanity is ugly many times. And, but at the same time, you can't have ugly without beautiful or pretty or, or whatever you want to put on as the antithesis to it. At the same time, with the imposter, with the insecurity, with that blunt look in the mirror that you talked about, does that allow investigators or is that important to teach the young folks that this actually allows you a true look of the beauty of humanity because you can't know that ugly unless you know the beauty because it's not ugly unless you know how beautiful it can be. And young investigators need to, must need to lean into that. Like, cause you, how would you make it? Yeah, boy, there's so many interesting points to make uh, with what you just said, Shane. And I'd say the first one is, um, imposter syndrome is is of course something we should always because it's paralyzing right the moment you begin to question your own uh worthiness to be in the environment that you're in or to have the position that you have uh you're 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 chaining yourself down when you should be freeing yourself to you know be the investigator or the you know the professional that you are um but on the flip side of it i think it's even more dangerous when you and i'll just say you you believe your own hype when you have uh, developed this outsized um, expectation that you understand everything and your insight is more valuable than your coworkers or the you know uh, another investigator, you close yourself down to the mistakes that inevitably will occur in an investigation. And to kind of circle back with what we just talked about, it shuts the door, if you will, to that new information that should get you to question what you believe. You think you're so good that you've solved it so fast. What do you do with this new piece of information that we're all looking at, we all recognize should be important, but you're dismissing it because if you understood it for what it was, it would mean that the theory that you've developed has to be wrong. And it's a dangerous place to be experienced enough to do this work on a regular basis, but have never had the humility of being spectacularly wrong mm -hmm. and when you finally get to that point you develop this you know it's almost like this dual um sense of self where on the one hand you have a great deal of confidence in your abilities 
but you also have the humility of knowing what it feels like to be wrong. And so you never sort of charge ahead whatever without critically examining what you're thinking of. And the, the, the phrase that I use when I teach investigators about this, they say you should leave your ego in the trunk. Go to the scene, be the intelligent, competent, you know, confident investigator that you are, but also leave the door open to having your coworkers or somebody else part of the process pointing out something to you that makes what you just thought spectacularly wrong. Because it's only through that, 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 that process that we engage in collectively that we'll get to the right answer. If you're convinced of you know, your, your, how correct you are and you are now impervious to new information or questioning, at some point you're going to be wrong and, and you won't be, you'll be the last person to know it. And so we really want to have this awareness of our fallibility while also believing very strongly in our skills that allow us to be part of this most important work. It's a hard balance to maintain. Oh, is it ever? Um, but at the same point though, when you look at our, I would never have thought that investigating a serial killer in order to be able to get to that, uh, unpredictable, uh, warped, um, everything that comes with the thinking around it. Um, symbolism, uh, martyrdom, um, you know, uh, victimology, uh, all of the bits that come with that, that the notion of uh, the way that I say it in my stuff is that imagine ego is nothing but a mask and we have to take it off. So just take it off. And, uh, but it, like a wholehearted, healthy human to be able to discover an incredibly not wholehearted, unhealthy human, right? You see the balance to it. I, and as I get older and as I mature in life, I am very much learning that I want to be that guy. I want to be the, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room and I want to be proud of it. And I think that that's a cool, uh, it's cool to hear that that's such an important part, that clarity is such an important part in this, in this, in this world. I think that's fascinating, Peter. Fascinating. Huh? I, I wish I could tell you that I spontaneously arrived at such a, a clear vision of how I needed to do this work, but I've made spectacular mistakes along the way and, and, and learned a lot of those lessons the hard way. And I'd say I'll leave your audience with one last one that um, I think is really, really valuable is that, you know, trying to apply your own sense of logic to understand the actions, the motivations of other people will always leave you wanting. Because your sense of logic is, of course, internal to you. Yeah. And from an investigative perspective, if you try to say, well, I wouldn't have committed the crime in this way, you're imposing a very detached, objective, logical framework and decision-making process to an event that was most likely chaotic, at least somewhat spontaneous, and generally not very logically organized. Yeah. And so, of course, you'll go in the wrong direction. Well, and you can apply that. We can take that out of conversations of serial killers and just go right into our partnerships in life and say that, you know, if you're trying to anticipate someone else's logic, um, see earlier... Uh, comment about all of the stories that we insert for all of the things because you don't have their stories you didn't live it 
Um, it's fascinating. Peter, thank you so much uh, for, for being here and sharing these insights. It's, um, it's refreshing. I think it's inspiring. I, I thought it was going to be dark, to be honest, and I find it far more inspiring than it is. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shane. This is The Shift Podcast. It's time to play Canada's favorite radio game show. Ooh, it's time for Game Showy, Canada's favorite game show on the radio. We battle it out for pride and so much more. Kelsey Campbell is here and your host, Ryan O'Donnell. Is there, I hear an echo right now? Yeah, so you got to watch your headphones because we got a bit of an yeah, echo there. Got, yeah, somebody's got an echo. Anyway, yes, oh, thank you, Bob. It's game showy time. <laughs> Not sure why I did that laugh, but I am sure why we're here because it's time to do some trivia. The, the, the thing we do the best here on the radio. Uh, we're going to be doing some summer trivia to celebrate the official start of summer, which was yesterday. Yesterday. Yes. Now, I know you're probably wondering, Ryan, didn't we just do this? Oh, don't worry. We've got a fresh batch of questions, a fresh batch of uh, categories and new prizes. Here's how it works. If you're new to Game Showy, our mm-hmm. contestants, Shane Hewitt, Kelsey mm-hmm. Campbell, mm-hmm. they're going to pick a question and a difficulty of said question. Today, we're playing for bottles of sunscreen because you need that. Skin cancer is on the rise in Canada. Don't get skin cancer. Put on sunscreen. Good lesson. One bottle of sunscreen is an easy question. Three is a hard one. Oof. Now, if you get the question right, you will hear this sound. Happy first day of summer, Squidward. Happy first day of summer, everyone. If you get it wrong, you'll hear this. It's too hot. Too hot. It's too hot. Which is something you'll hear me say all the time throughout the summer. Now, if you get the question wrong, your opponent has five seconds to steal the answer, by the way, Mm. so be wary. We have three categories of questions to choose from this fine morning. We have summer songs, summer sun, and Mm -hmm. summer rituals. We also have a very special question, which is called the text line special, a question for the shift heads and the shift heads alone. It's hidden right in the show, and one of our contestants is going to stumble across it and could win two bottles of sunscreen, some big money right there, if the listeners are correct. So I'm going to ask you the question, text in your answers, and we'll see if you're the difference maker. So when we find the question, you'll hear this. Okay, so when we hear a little bit of Brian Adams, we know it's time. 877-399-9898. Here is your question. Say what you will about Ronald Reagan, but he did declare July to be ice cream month and Canada followed suit. Nice. Now in 2022, narrative research surveyed Canadians to find the most popular flavor in our country. What is the most popular flavor of ice cream in Canada? Is it chocolate vanilla mint chocolate chip or strawberry again what is the most popular flavor of ice cream in canada chocolate vanilla mint chocolate chip or strawberry 
Okay, shift heads, you can change the outcome of this game. 877-399-9898. What is Canada's favorite ice cream, chocolate, vanilla, mint chocolate chip, or strawberry? Text it in. Our categories are summer songs, summer sun, summer rituals, and you can tell that I'm from a different generation because Ryan wants to play for sunscreen, and I call it tanning oil. Kelsey Campbell is our <laughs> guest here on the show, and she's making sure that everyone's got sunscreen on. Bob? Thanks, Bob. Uh, now, Kelsey, you won last week, so Shane is going to get first pick this week. Okay. Can I, I just say it feels like so good to hear you say that? Well, oh, just I to hear that you that won? Yes, Would you so want me to say it again? What, what happened? What was the outcome last week? Oh, you won. Oh, you oh. defeated Shane last week. Oh, Jono, how much delicious. does it cost me to get Mike or Kelsey's mic turned off? <laughs> <laughs> Ten bucks? Five bucks. Email transfer? Come on, I can do it right now. Fine. Uh... Oh, I got to pick one. Yeah, you, uh, you need to go. It's your turn to shine. <laughs> My turn. Oh, shine. Look at you with a summer pun, sunshine pun. I tried. Hey? Thank you for oh. noticing. Okay. Um, I don't know. I think I'm like going to go with summer sun. I feel it's been pretty rainy in Alberta mm-hmm. these last few days. We was so nice for a few weeks. Now it's been rainy. So I'm going to go summer sun. And I, uh, in, in defense of Kelsey's fierce, competitive, uh, tear your head off nature, I'm going to go three bottles of tanning oil, please. Three bottles of, t- of uh, are we changing it to tanning oil? No, I'm no. I'm going to get confused. I just call okay. it tanning oil. Okay. For three was, bottles to... of sunscreen. Coconut. Shane, it was it was two years ago when Lytton, BC became one of the hottest places on the entire planet. And the whole world looked at Canada and went, I thought it was ice all year round. How is it hot mm-hmm. there? It can get very hot. That's Your question is this. Like. Okay. It's pretty simple. It is still the hottest temperature ever recorded in our history. Did Lytton, BC hit 50 degrees? No. No, there's no way. The world would have, the internet would have imploded. It did implode, and so did it, the city. It, yes, <laughs> it did. That's true. It did. There's still, but it did not building. hit fifty. It did not hit. It can't. It couldn't have hit fifty. hit fifty. Never has it hit fifty. Never has it hit fifty. Well, that is correct. It did oh, not God. hit fifty degrees. Happy birthday of summer, Squidward. It nice. did, however, hit forty-nine point four degrees Celsius. That's pretty we close were to 50. Very close. And also worth noting that before Lytton held the record, Saskatchewan held it. And uh, Yellow Grass in Middale, 1937, it hit 45 degrees. 1937, worth yes. noting. I feel like we should Long probably know that. Long time ago. But there you go. Three bottles of sunscreen, wow. which you would need lots of to make it through 50 degree weather in Canada. Oh, but tanning oil works so good at getting you the tan. I mean, you sizzle and a little bit, but it works. orange. This is, you guys, Ryan opens game showy talking about the rise in skin cancer rates, Shane's mm-hmm. lathering on tanning oil in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, and also, can we just like give a shout out to anyone who had people or was were in Lytton, BC, because mm-hmm. it's literally still continues. Uh, yeah, they just ended the state of up. emergency like this week, like last week, I think. I mean, it took two years for the state of emergency alone, right? Crazy. It's absolutely, absolutely it insane. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. it is and the insane. wildfire stories continue. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think we're going to be talking more about uh, historical trends um, mm-hmm. very, very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that really positive note, uh, as Thanks someone who loves the up. sun, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I also am a big fan of tanning with my sunscreen on. Uh, but I'm gonna go. Okay, you got you just nailed that. So I gotta go uh, three bottles of sunscreen. Mm-hmm. Summer rituals, Bob. Summer rituals. Okay, this is a tough question. Tough question. I have talked about no it on the pants. show before. Oh, different ritual. So. Uh, one of the biggest rituals for Canadians is to take a trip down to Canada's Wonderland during the summer. It's the biggest and best theme park we got. Now, its biggest roller coaster has a summit that reaches almost 100 meters high. It goes almost 150 kilometers per hour. And if you wanted to walk to the top of its hill, it's 430 steps. It's a beast. It's also blue. What is the name of that roller coaster? Oh man, I think I needed I needed that tip. Okay. Okay, sorry, go, go. You do you. Okay. You do what you. What is the name <laughs> of this roller coaster? Is Ryan it... said it was a beast. I will say that all of the roller coasters I'm about to listen are or list off are real roller coasters at Canada's Wonderland, okay? Okay. Which is just outside of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yes, Vaughn. Barely outside these days. Back in the day, it was way outside. <laughs> yeah, Not so much true. anymore. <laughs> very, very good point. Uh, okay, so what's the name of this roller coaster? Behemoth, Leviathan, the Mighty Canadian Mindbuster, or Wild Beast? I think it's. Weird. I was going to jump on this before you even read the options because I went to Canada's Wonderland one time only, but like fourteen years ago, and I rode the Behemoth. And I thought that was at that time the biggest roller coaster in Canada, but I'm pretty certain I recall it being yellow. So I am really glad that you said it's blue. Mm. Between, okay, yeah, you did say something about a beast. Wild beast, blue. Love, uh, it's, my, it's, will the, it's Will the Beast. Will the Beast. No, no, it's not the answer. I'm saying it's wildebeest. It's not wild beast. Maybe it is no, the I, answer. I don't I know. Now I screwed just, it up. I didn't mean. You just, I made okay. it weird. I'm yeah, sorry. wildebeest. I think Shane just gave it to me. Beast. Okay, hmm. I'm going with wild beast slash wildebeest. Final answer. Final answer I'm is weird. incorrect. That is not the name of the roller coaster. Too hot. Five seconds, Shane, to steal it if you got it. Well, I'm going to go back to Bohemith because that's where Kelsey started, and why not? Kelsey was correct in that Behemoth was the biggest coaster, and it is yellow. It's also my favorite coaster there, but it's not the biggest. That title belongs to the Leviathan. Mm. July 2020, it's ranked as the seventh tallest roller coaster in the world. It's huge and, yeah. Going there and how far out of town it was, but now there's houses like all around it. There's houses. There's the one ride called Sky Ride, I think, that takes you all the way top. It's a massive tower and it's like a swing and you can see everything around. And yeah. I remember clearly the last time I was on it and there were still empty fields. And I bet if I went this year, which oh, I there's, went to, there's houses probably there. not that at all. Yeah. So in like that was a tough a one. neighborhood though. to go there. It's weird. Yeah. Okay. I don't know the um, area well enough, but I'm glad that you're giving us this little tour of Canada's Wonderland. Tell us more about uh, urban Wonder sprawl Man. in uh, the greater <laughs> Toronto area. <laughs> okay. Um, I feel like this is uh, this is awkward here. I feel like um, 
You don't want to beat the crap out of me right now? <laughs> yeah, I, this is my niceness is kicking in here. I'm tight. I do. I, I don't want to be mean. I, I, but at the same time, I, I, I don't want the regret of Kelsey crushing don't, my soul. Don't let up. I don't need your sympathy. Okay. Uh, Ryan, I'm wondering if I could check on the score before I start. It's 3 nothing. Don't get okay. too excited. <laughs> All right. Oof, wow. Hey, sharp. Um, okay. Well, then in that case, you guys are both making me go for three bottles of tanning oil, please. Summer songs. Okay. This is, uh, this is a good one. I found it. I found a list and it was an interesting list from Rolling Stone magazine. In 2022, they collected what they thought were the best summer songs of all time. Which of these songs did they pick as number one? The best song of the summer for all time. Is it? California Girls by the Beach Boys, Snoop Dogg, Gin and Juice, Alice Cooper, uh, School's Out, Len, Steal My Sunshine, or None of the Above. Okay, so this is a A, B, C, D, or E scenario, apparently. Um, uh, well, because Ryan or loves the Beach own. Boys. He, Ryan has, his music taste is very clear and easy to identify. It's the Smiths and the Beach Boys, because they're this very similar. And um, so I'm because they're Beach, Beach Boys are one of the options here. I'm going California Girls Beach Boys. California Girls Beach Boys. They are very high up on the list, but they're not number one. That is really? incorrect. Yep. Kelsey, you got five seconds to steal it if you know it. Alice Cooper schools out. Also incorrect. Come on. Oh, this is wild. None of the above. The song they picked as the best summer song of all time is Good Times by Chic, 1979. That's the best summer song? It's. A, I what? think it's totally incorrect. I don't know what the heck I think it's totally about. incorrect. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is one Great of the song. best songs yeah. of all time. But I don't know if it's the best summer song of all time. Come on, Rolling Stone. It's pretty good. Right. Let's put on the Speedo and some tanning oil and give her. All right. Okay, we got this is wild. This like we've got two incorrect answers in a row. Kelsey, now you you're in a good spot. It's your go. I feel good. I've never felt better. Okay. Um, okay, I, great. I can I love the feel confidence. the golden rays shining down on me. Mm. I am going to go with, I had no success with summer rituals, summer songs, had no idea. So I haven't had a you, shot at summer sun yet. I'm going to go for two no bottles of sunscreen. Just That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Two bottles of sunscreen, summer sun. On average, what is the hottest or which is the hottest city in Canada year after year. Hmm. Victoria, BC, Tirana, Ontario, Montreal, Quebec, or Vancouver, BC. Which is the hottest? Man, if you've been ever participated in summer in Toronto and that humidity, it is hot. Mm, it's hot, hot, yeah. hot. But Sticky. I as a British Columbia girl, I'll tell you right now, it's not Vancouver. I still think they set records of how much rain they get through the summer. Mm-hmm. I, but I, I, I'm thinking Victoria, Sunshine Coast. I think there's a Sunshine name for Coast. a reason. Mm. That is correct. It is Victoria, mm. the hottest Happy city. Yep. I guess it's it is city. You said I was thinking like Oliver and those places down like a Soyuz. Mm-hmm. No, but I guess those probably country. aren't cities, right? Yeah, so the top 10, we're, like, we're top list here. So Victoria, and then it's Abbotsford, 
Kelowna, and then this one surprised me. Windsor was number four. Vancouver's Ooh. actually number five. So they got they have some long what? stretches of heat. Yeah. Toronto's all the way down at number eight, and then London and Oshawa right behind it. See, I would think yep. that the London I'm Woodstock, surprised. some of that stuff, like that is some yeah. sticky weather in the summertime. And do you okay. know what I think, Shane? I don't think anything really matters because here she comes. Here she comes. The One comeback. bottle of sunscreen oh. down. Oh, the comeback. I get it. Okay, sorry. I was just yep. still looking at the fact that you're still trailing. All right. Um, <laughs> next on Game Show, our categories are summer songs, summer suns, summer rituals. I'm going to go with two bottles of tanning oil and summer rituals, Ryan. Summer rituals. Oh, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. We just stumbled across the text line special. <laughs> you forget what it's called? Of, I had a pause of dramatic effect, but it was too long. Um, yes. Yeah, so this is the text line special. This is the question for the listeners and the listeners alone. So shift heads, get your phones ready. I'll give you one last chance to text it in. The vote is very close. 877-399-9898. The question is this. What is the most popular flavor of ice cream in Canada? The options, chocolate, vanilla, mint chocolate chip, and strawberry. 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 I was very surprised when I saw the actual stats. And the text line is neck and neck. It is between two. It's between chocolate and vanilla is the most texted and answered. Like, so many. However, leading by four texts is chocolate. Chocolate is in the lead. And to my dismay, because I can't stand chocolate ice cream, that's the correct answer. It is chocolate. Happy birthday of summer, Squidward! I do not accept this. Yeah, That chocolate chocolate is the favorite? Yeah, I would like to. Get, is there a panel of like who? I, I have the stats, who, who do I send my complaint form to? Mm, well, try that. It doesn't work. Canadians. It, so Maryland Research did this poll. Chocolate <laughs> okay, at thirteen percent, by the way. Vanilla was eleven, and then mint chocolate chip was in third. Strawberries all the way down at number eight. I was like, I that's thought people hated mint. No, chocolate that's chip. fake strawberry. See, real strawberries, amazing. Fake strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know it wouldn't make it onto the top list, but something I didn't actually know that adults still enjoyed was cotton candy ice cream. And I can tell you, it was my only pregnancy craving for my, and I had cotton candy candy ice cream every single day of my pregnancy. Yeah. That's amazing. And now I can't look at it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to look at it. (laughs) Oh, Oh, interesting. It's me. me. It's your turn. Is there time to come Um, back? We're, uh, what no. are we at here? What are we at? You're welcome to try though. Shane, Sh- yeah, Shane is ahead. It's five to it's, f- it's five to two, but we got time for another question. So I'm not even worried. I'm not even worried. Yep. Uh, two. Bo- I gotta go after the only other one that has two bottles of sunscreen. Summer songs. Yep. Let's do this. All right, let's do it. Uh, Kelsey, the question is this: What was the top song of the summer, the year I was born, oh. 1996? Is it? The Macarena by Los Del Rio. Santeria by Sublime. Always Be My Baby by Mariah Carey. Or Wannabe by the Spice Girls. Oof. You're asking this question you... of like the Canada's number one speaker dancer in the bar. <laughs> uh, so I know this one. Dances? 
with a great deal of certainty, but I do want to add, I did do an airband to Wannabe, but it, that's not 96. Uh, I'm going to go with Macarena. <laughs> to my dismay, once again, unfortunately, yes, the year I was born, the biggest song in the world was the Macarena. That's correct. Happy birthday of summer, Squidward! Uh, I wanted to make some sort of comment about song. Shake Those Hips, but I'm pretty sure that's an HR infraction issue there. Hey, man, if my Speedo comment earlier um, was not, then you're good. I think you're covered. Um, we did get a text that said that uh, Mango Jerry should uh, Mango Mango Jerry should be the uh, song of the best song of the summer of all time, which I would say is good. Except there was a remake of that that came out that probably graduated to more audience than that, and that was Shaggy's same song, right? Eh? Yeah. I know Kelsey dance. Oh, let's just do this all night, guys. Right? Let's dance. This is good. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's um, that's the end of the game show, eh? That's uh, the Ryan, end of the game show. Do we have a total? We do have a total. We do have mm-hmm. a total. Yeah. The total. Let's, you know what? It sounds like we ran out of time. Uh, maybe <laughs> no. we'll, we'll try to remember uh, the total next week when we uh, re- rejoin on the shift. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> oh, we all can, right. We can push pause. <laughs> we have not run out of time to announce the total. All that matters here, friends, is Kelsey did not win. Oh, wait. Oh, there it is. Even the yeah, kids are happy. It was 5-4 in the end, and summer goes to Shane. Thank you for listening to Game Showy here on The Shift. Uh, yeah, big plans for the summer. I can't wait. I'm, I'm kind of hoping it's going to warm up again here because it's been so cold. So it looks like the weekend is is here. And and uh, welcome to summer, friends. Kelsey Campbell, thanks for being here. Yeah, I got to hit the beach. Think about yeah. things. That's good. Give her. Soak up them you, rays. Yeah, you're in BC's interior in the Okanagan. You have lots of choices. You should go. Five Oops. minutes away from a beach in every direction. Highly recommend. Right? Nice. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? John O'Chung is in downtown Vancouver. That's not an are you okay with question. I mean, it doesn't matter if we're okay with it or not. That's where he has to work. That's where his studio is. Uh, Ryan O'Donnell is in downtown Calgary, uh, just thriving. Uh, I'm Shane Hewitt. I'm in the city of Airdrie on the north side of Calgary. Welcome to The Shift, all across Canada here for you. 877-399-9898. That is our phone number for your comments on these stories that make you ponder, are you okay with OnlyFans? Um, it's an interesting platform, isn't it? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I I know people that make more money than I do in a month in like three days with pictures. Like it's crazy how much money you can bring. Like, you know, the people posting like, yeah, one of my friends, one of my friends became a stripper and, uh, from high school and, uh, really she, she's all about like, you know, body positivity and like, you know, freedom and all that. Like it's, she could have gone like in one of two career directions and she wanted to go that way. And it's, it's actually, it's quite a fascinating story. And uh, yeah, I was I, I was chatting with her once, and she, yeah, she, she she makes some money off of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, adults doing adult things. Right? Yeah, it's for adults. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I, I really agree with, I, I don't know if I really ag ag agree, but it's not my place to judge anybody and adults yeah. um, doing adult things. And I think the cool thing about OnlyFans is, as far as I understand it, like you can't just get into it and watch for free. You know, so if you're a kid, um, you either have to have credit cards and, you know, fake verification of how old you are, which I suppose is possible. But the reality is, is it's, it's, it's a login subscription based adult. It's not even all adult, but it's mostly adult in today's world world. Okay. But if you think of it, like, you know, finding your weird uncle Bob's, uh, naked magazines from decades ago, uh, it's even more limiting than that for the most part, because, you know, this stuff is subscription. Can you record it or screen record it? And does that all happen in theft? And sure, I bet it does. But the reality is, is, yeah, I mean, it's it's essentially locked off for young people and you get adults doing adult things. So completely locked off. And the people that upload it have full control. You know, they're not answering oh. to a studio or to a, you know, kind of they're like to a creepy studio. There are mm. normal ones, but you know, they have full control. So there's a lot of reasons why that platform does so well and why people make so much money off of it. I did watch that, um, that documentary on Pornhub about oh, yeah. the, that was fascinating too. It was a great that documentary. Some of the things that they've gone through with that, with verification, with people that would take uh, non-consensual videos, and I don't mean like the act of their their uh, chikabarawa time was not consensual. I'm not saying that, but the recording of the video, maybe, or the sharing of the video, not consensual, yeah. and that p videos would you know, get complained on and come down and then they would get popped back up again. Someone would upload it. The, the verified user scenario has been forced to change in a lot of those um, other websites because of places like OnlyFans. Because now you can control the verified user uploads the videos only. And it's a little tighter that way. So I think that that's a, that's a good thing. So, I mean, I realize that morally some people may not agree with what happens on OnlyFans. But when you look at the big picture of what it's doing versus the amount of free porn on the internet and all that, I would say uh, this is probably a much more positive step, like it or not, mm -hmm. uh, than anything. Anyway, uh, that's not really why we're talking about OnlyFans, but yeah, we kind of are. Last night here on The Shift, we told you about the stepson of one of the people trapped on that submersible that was going down to the Titanic. Hamish Harding is a billionaire. His stepson, Brian is proving to be something. Brian posted on Facebook yesterday, Hamish, my stepdad is lost in a submarine. Thoughts and prayers that the rescue mission will be successful. And it might be distasteful being here, but my family would want me to be at the Blink-182 show as it's my favorite band and music helps me in difficult times. I think we came, that was CBS 8, I think we came to the conclusion that you know what, going to the uh, Blink show, good for you. If that's how you need to cope and deal with it, you need to get out. It's not like you're going to uh, swim there and save the day and you're wasting time. I mean, I think that that's the thing. So it's the social media part that was weird about it. So yes, uh, in his own way, for whatever his own reasons were, he went to the Blink-182 show where he probably heard this song. Ironically. Where are you? So it took less than 24 hours, but Brian is now back in the news. <laughs> um, we're laughing at this guy's behavior, just to be clear, not about the situation. Yes, it's all um, about the behavior. 
because this guy, his his stepdad is lost at the moment, and he is publishing about how it might be in bad taste, first clue, that he's going to concerts. Now, that is not where um, it ended. Um, as it was uh, highlighted by TMX, which I have a feeling... Oh, there's one letter off there. Uh, is it? Ah, yes. By TMZ, the website. Uh, Uh, Brian was back on Twitter on Wednesday, first asking his followers to continue to think of his family, writing, please keep my family in your prayers. Perfect. Good for you. 30 minutes later, his attention did shift, though, to a streamer and an OnlyFans model named Bria, who posted a picture of herself in a bikini with a very provocative question it was a very adult provocative question and brian clearly into appreciating the picture reposted it and replied yes please it's just it's public man why do you like do you think she's gonna go oh yes brian commented oh brian get over here man what like dude uh so the <laughs> the best part of this was Brain's comment section. That's a typo. One user wrote, LMAO, quote, tweeting a thirst trap while your stepdad is lost at sea is wild business. <laughs> a thirst trap, mm-hmm. by the way, is sort of that whole seeking approval, flirting, online pickup, desperation a little bit. It's a fair that's a fair look at what is a thirst trap, eh, Ryan? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. All right. You know it when you see Someone it. else added in the comments, this guy loves Blink-182 and having ladies doing the provocative thing that was asked in the earlier adult question. And he's not afraid to let the world know about it. <laughs> That's the funny part, is if he wants to let the world know, go ahead. Maybe mm. wait a week until you find out if your stepdad is uh you know imploded in the bottom of the ocean right like the 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 scenario that is happening with the submarine is that either they're trying to find them and they're they're hanging on or it was catastrophic failure i mean that's really what this boils down to so again like if you're gonna go and go to blink show go uh, posting it online Eh, questionable if you're going to send a message to someone who uh is Posting provocative photos because you appreciate the ask of the very adult action of the photo. Maybe a DM, right? Like, I don't know. I I can tell you this, and I don't I all jokes aside, there's a lot of hurt happening here. Oh, yeah. And um unfortunately, it's happening in front of the whole world now because of um the behavior of the kid. And that's not what it's supposed to be about, right? It's supposed to be about everybody who's there and all the families that are around it. And I think it's disrespectful, not that my opinion matters, but to the other families that are trying to navigate their way through this too. It's a distraction. and um, But it's interesting, without a doubt. Oh, just I wish you could see the memes people are making of the situation like the jokes the straight up jokes people are making about and i saw one today it's nasty i saw one today and it was uh the titanic getting ready to add to its kill count and it was a video of lebron james stretching before a game 
Like that's, that's kind of the tone of how ridiculous the situation is and how nasty. um, I think also the fact that it's all a bunch of rich people on board has a lot of people feeling less sympathetic, but it doesn't take just because they're rich doesn't mean they're less human, you know, like there's a lot of family cares less about them. Yeah. See, there's a lot of really, and that's the thing. Brian's actions here are not helping that image. You know, they're making it more way worse, making it easier to make fun of it. Yeah, uh, there was one that I saw just to give some context of how nasty it is. There was uh, him and the Blink One Eighty Two background, and all it said was hashtag inheritance. Like that's oh, that's God. that's the kind of stuff that comes from this. Is it healthy that people are are making fun and and doing? No, I would say there's a lot of unhappy, unhealthy with jealousy and all the things there. Hurt people, hurt people. But at the same time, you you also can't. You, you, like you can't get mad at people for reacting when you doing things that morally people feel like are offside. I just, there's nothing good about this story. Nothing good about it. But again, it's interesting. That's for sure. Thanks for listening to the shift podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple podcast, Google podcast, Spotify and curious cast.ca. 